Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 27. <clears throat> As you know, we have been in Proverbs for quite a while now, and we're making our way through into the probably the last section. It, you know, with uh, get up to chapter 30 here. And last week we were in chapter 27, verse 13. And uh, we just took that one verse and we saw how that it was a, uh, a message to the nation of Israel, but yet uh, in a practical way, it's a great message to us. We saw how that basic dispensationalism lays out in the Bible. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, we started that in Bible Institute a couple of sessions ago after we got through the first two years of laying out, Bible dispensations are absolutely crucial if you're ever going to put your Bible together. In the Bible, there are four references to dispensations. There's, there's more than four dispensations throughout the Bible. There's 11 or 12, however you want to count them. But in the Bible itself, there's four direct references to dispensations. One in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Another one in Ephesians 3, verse 2. Colossians one twenty five, and then, of course, uh, 1 Corinthians 9.17. And, you know, I, it's been amazing to me that most people never understand dispensations or never understand how they lay out in the Bible, certainly don't understand the definitions of them. But if you just simply would look at these four places that is found in the Bible, it defines for you uh, what a different, what a different uh, dispensation is. And uh, by the Bible's definition, not man's, you know, and we are what you would call a moderate dispensationalist. And uh, we, um, you know, in dealing with dispensations, and we talked about this in Bible Institute, you have people who don't believe in any dispensations at all. And uh, they're against any kind of dividing up the Bible uh, in any way, shape or form. Most of that is your neo-evangelical churches, churches that have taken Baptist off their name, you know, and went into that gray mush that, you know, exists uh, without any real Bible doctrine. But then on the other side, you have the, what we call the hyper-dispensationalists. And uh, they're guys that uh, they cut up the Bible so much that uh, they don't leave anything left. They reject uh, anything in the New Testament except the writings of Paul. Some of them even narrow it down more than that. They reject New Testament baptism for, uh, you know, Christians. They just, they get so messed up that they just completely destroy the Bible in any way, shape, or form. And that all starts back with a guy by the name of Bullinger, and a little bit later on, a guy by the name of uh, Cornelius Stamm, who uh, just really are just heretics when it comes to trying to put the Bible together. We're what you call a moderate dispensationalist. What's that mean? It simply means that we rightly divide the Bible where the Bible rightly divides itself. We don't go in and try to make something happen. You know, uh, the Bible will always follow a natural di- dividing system. And it, when you, once you see that and you stay with that, then you need to keep your hands out of the Bible. You don't need to get in there and think, well, this does this or this does and make something happen. You know, Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, you don't go four verses in the Bible that you see God divides. He says he divides the light from the darkness. And actually, the key to God and understanding how he works will be one of division, not putting together. That's the problem today. We have a Bible that divides. It'll divide you from the world. It'll divide you from sin. It'll divide you from everything that is against God. But in Christianity, Christian world today is a Christian world that wants to get everybody together. Churches today want to bring in the world in their music and in their preaching and everything because their mindset is to get everybody together where the Bible's mindset is to separate yourself. And uh, it's just the way that it's always been. You're going to find that in the Bible, you know, sanctification is a great, great Bible doctrine that is lost today. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the day you got saved, God sets you apart from something. And in Christianity today, in churches today, it's hard to see God's people separated from anything. Just because you take worldly music and put Christian words to it <laughs> doesn't mean that it honors God. And you're going to find that, you know, the Bible will always follow a natural dividing system and the key to God. Hebrews chapter 4, the Bible says that God, the day you got saved, God divided you. Now, you're complete in Christ today if you're saved. But the only way you got completed in Christ is Hebrews chapter 4 says that the sharp two-edged sword of the Word of God divided you first. 
So you see, as you come to the Bible, you'll find that the Bible itself will have some divisions in it. And you don't make them happen. You just follow the natural line of the Bible, and there they are. You'll find that the books in the Bible will divide themselves up. And again, you just follow the natural division. Every book in your Bible will have a natural division in it. Every one of them. And all you have to do is just follow those natural divisions. You don't have to make something up. You don't have to look at it and say, well, I like it this way. Just follow what God did. The chapters in the Bible will have their natural divisions in them. You get into those chapters and you've got to see how God divides it up historically, inspirationally, or doctrinally. And from Thursday night and, of course, other things that we do, we now know that even the words will divide out the context of, of the Bible. You see, when God gave us the Word of God, He put natural divisions in it. Uh, and when you rightly divide it, as 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, Study to show thyself approve a workman unto God, which needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. And, uh, you know, when you do it that way and follow the natural divisions, then, that, that, then you'll learn it. And it's true of the Christian life. The moment you get saved, you know why? Some of God's people have the problems they have after they get saved because you never followed that simple biblical process. You got saved, but you left some things into your world that God said you should have left out. You didn't divide. You left some people. You left some circumstances. You left some habits in your life that should have, you get, could have been divided out the day you got saved. And it's real simple. You know, we go through our whole lives as Christians. Boy, if I've learned anything in all my years, I've watched this happen. As Christians, what we work 24-7 is taking the simple things of the Bible and trying to make them so complex. You know why? Because we can live and do what we want to do within the complexity of the Word of God when we make it that way. It's hard to not, it's hard to not do what's right when the Bible is so simple about it, isn't it? When it's black and white and it lays out what you should be and what you should do, it's hard to get around that. But we all do it. We make it so complex that we can live within its complexity. And the Bible is real simple. Either you rightly divide it or you wrongly divide it. It's just that simple. And we saw how in verse 13 will doctrine be applied to the nation of Israel. Through our book in Proverbs, we have found the study of this strange woman. And uh, we know her to be uh, the uh, great whore of Revelation chapter 17 and 18, the, connected with the Antichrist in the tribulation. And we saw in verse 13 how we've seen it a couple of times in Proverbs, how the warning of somebody aligning themselves with this strange woman. And we know it to be the Antichrist and his system. We saw last week somebody in the tribulation defiling their garments. And I showed you back in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 that for the nation of Israel, their salvation is likened to garments. And then I showed you that it talks about somebody defiling those garments and being warned against that. And then somebody's nakedness, losing their garments, showing up at the great white throne judgment. We also looked at it from a practical standpoint, how it will apply to you and me at the judgment seat of Christ. Us hooking up with the world system, the strange woman, and losing all rewards in our clothing at the judgment seat of Christ. And we went through it very clearly in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, and Romans chapter 14, verse 10. And as I showed you, we wound up with that thing last week in Revelation 3, 18. He talks about for us in the church age that at the judgment seat of Christ, our shame of our nakedness doth not appear. So that was last week, and I, I go through that because all these verses kind of connect together, and I want to lay out a flow for you so you can follow it for those of you who really want to put the book of Proverbs together. So today, we're going to look at the next couple of verses and again, see how it ties into what we have been talking about last month or so in chapter 27. So let's read these verses and it says this, he that blesseth his friend with a loud voice rising early in the morning, it shall be counted a curse to him. A continual dropping of a, on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Whosoever hideth her hideth the wind, and the ointment of his right hand which bereath itself. Mike from Wichita, where are you over here? Where'd you go? He's over here. Would you stand up and ask God blessing on the service this morning?
Now, verse 14 says, He that blesses his friend with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, it shall be counted a curse to him. Now, most people would look at that and think that's a really weird verse. And it is a really weird verse, no question about it. And somebody would think of that and say, what possibly can you learn from that? Well, you know, here again, we'll, we'll, we'll give it our best shot today. And uh, uh, verses like this, places like this, as far as I'm concerned, will separate the men from the boys when it comes to the Bible. And he says, he that blesses his friend with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, it shall be counted a curse to him. Now, inspirationally, that's the easy part. We can all identify with this person here. We can. Someone who walks around praising God all the time and clearly has a false piety about them uh, that, you know, it's just not real. Uh, it's like they have no real depth to them, so they become very vocal and animated uh, to make you believe that they're really spiritual. They think that the louder they yell glory to God or shout amen, the more spiritual you think they will be. And every church has them. You know, I mean, uh, some more than others. Uh, believe me, and, and I've had my share of them uh, over the years. And fortunately, uh, we don't have any at the moment, but I'm expecting one to come in any time now, so I'll let you know when they get here. But, you know, they're always the loudest ameners, the loudest glory to God. Now, let me just say this. Amen is as part of, of Christianity as anything. I mean, it's been down through history. It's been, you know, something that, uh, you know, is the congregation agrees with what's being said. And it's a good thing. You know, churches are either so cold and so dead and all pruned up like they've been baptized in dill pickle juice that they never say nothing. Uh, and, and there needs to be a, yeah, there needs to be a balance. And uh, you know what? I'm just going to tell you, you ought to enjoy what you have with the Lord. Amen. Amen. I mean, if you're saved this morning and glad for it compared to what the world got for you, it's okay. It's okay to enjoy it. It is. And uh, it's a thing where, you know, I, I preached many, many places many, many times over the years, you know, and I, I get it. You know, you get a bunch of people that love the Lord and love God. They don't want to stay quiet about it. I get it. But there's a rule of thumb that you always follow. You know what it is? You never amen it louder than you live it. And that's the problem with, with, with a guy like this. And, uh, you know, and I don't want to, by saying something like that, I don't want to take away from uh, your exuberance of enjoying what God gave you. I don't want you to be the Episcopalians this morning or Presbyterians or Methodists. I want you to be Bible-believing Christians that are saved by the blood of the Lamb, and you're happy about it and praise the Lord for it, and you're glad you're here today. That's two of you. Appreciate it. (laughs) You know, years ago, I... uh, I did a lot of Bible conferences up in up, up, upstate New York, uh, and Dr. Ruckman was part of those, and we would uh, do Bible conferences up there, uh, probably 15, 16, 17 years worth. And, uh, you know, Dr. Ruckman always had uh, quite a following. And uh, I, I, I found through observation uh, you two kinds of people that, that followed him. And this certainly wasn't his fault in any way, shape, or form. Everybody's got groupies, you know, and... Uh, uh, the, the first crowd was, was the serious Bible students, men and women who really wanted to learn the Bible. And they knew where to go to learn the Bible. And when he showed up, brother, he gave you something. I ain't kidding you. Uh, some of the greatest messages I ever heard in my life, you know, I heard that old boy put out there, and those places were packed. And he'd come out there, and you'd find people who were Bible students who saw what they could get, and uh, they were strong uh, in their Bible, and uh, they were really good guys. Then the second group that you had was what I call the wannabes, uh, men who never uh, in their life would do anything for God. Uh, but boy, they uh, at Bible conference time, uh, here they come, like bugs at a nightlight. In fact, it's one of the great principles I learned from those years that wherever you got light, you're going to have bugs. And that's just the true life. It just is, and it's true in churches. And uh, I mean, these guys were the worst fathers. These guys were the worst Christians, they were the worst husbands. I mean, they, they just, they were worthless. And uh, one night, this place was packed. There had to be 3,000 people there. And I mean, the place was rocking. I mean, uh, these people knew how to sing. 
and they love the Lord, brother. And uh, I mean, they uh, a lot of them up there being upstate New York were uh, saved out of the Roman Catholic Church. I say that, uh, you know, at one night, Dr. Ruckman, who was Catholic in his life, he asked how many were former Roman Catholics, and I mean, almost everybody in the place. And they were glad that they got saved out of the Roman Catholic Church, and they were happy about it. Uh, when you started talking about the Bible and singing about the Bible, uh, they, they, they got into it. And I remember <laughs> we were up there. I'll tell you what. We, they used to sing the song, And Can It Be? I mean, they had lift the ceiling off of that thing. And then we, they'd sing, Hold the Fort, for I am coming. You know, and then when they waved, their, they waved the answer, I mean, the, the sea of 3,000 Bibles just waving back. It was incredible. It was really incredible. All great. I mean, <laughs> if you can't preach after that, you're in trouble. And it's a thing where all of a sudden, right out of the front row, this guy comes leaping out into the front. And he, he does what we call in Christianity, Runs the bases. You know what that is? Yeah, 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 yeah. Go ahead, Alex. Show us. Show us what running the bases is. Yeah, he he starts going around the whole. whole I mean, the churches of the the, the auditorium has got three thousand people. It's it's a big place, and he's we're all saying he's walking back and forth, yelling, "Praise God! Glory to God! Oh, praise Jesus!" All the way around the place, man. He's just going nuts, and and I'm sitting up there. And uh, I'm getting ready to preach. I'm going to preach next. And a pastor leaned over to me and he said, you see that guy? No, what guy? No, you said, you see that guy? And I said, yeah. He says, he only shows up at Bible conference time. He won't be at church for another year until we have Bible conference. Uh, he's lost his wife. He's lost his family. Uh, you know, but he's here every time Dr. Ruckman shows up for a Bible conference. And he does the exact same thing. That's our guy in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 14. All show and no go. Uh, every, in every aspect of his life. He has no real church. He has no Bible. Oh, he's waving the right Bible, but if you think he knows anything about it. He has no power in his life, no ministry, no nothing. But oh, let him tell you how great God is. And these guys are drawn to that. And it's like you have nothing in your life, but this is my 15 moments of fame that I'm going to really, everybody is really going to believe because I'm running the bases, screaming at, my, at the top of my lungs about glory to God that everybody's going to say, gee, honey, look how spiritual he is. Why aren't you like that? That's not how it's going to work. But, oh, boy, can they talk. I mean, I get two or three cone falls a month by guys like this. And they'll want to go on and on and on. They'll want them to say, you know what, I, I, I really need to meet with you. And I say, well, I, I, you know, I don't know what to tell you. He said, no, I have a special secret doctrine that God gave to me that I only want to give to you. And I said, well, I appreciate that. But number one, if it's a doctrine that's outside the Bible, I'm only not interested. And if it's a great doctrine that's already in the Bible, I probably already know it, so it isn't a secret. So I don't think we're going to meet. I get them all the time. I mean, they, they want to go on and on and on, on and on and on. There are times when I wish I could get treat my dog to answer the phone. I mean, it just goes on. And so, you know what? I love, once it happens once or twice, you get smarter, smarter than the problem. If you look at my phone, you know how you can have contacts in your phone? I just put the number in and say, put, put the name, for the spell of the name, don't answer, idiot. <laughs> when it rings, don't answer. It's an idiot. I don't answer it. Now, don't get nervous. None of you are like that. I don't have any of your names in like that. But I'm just telling you, it, it, it's crazy. You know, and it's a, you know, I've seen them where they talk. And don't, they never do anything for God. They're, they're never in any real church. They don't have any ministry. They don't do one thing. And when you hear them talk, you think they're, it's the second coming of Elijah. The great illustration here is this, rising early in the morning. It, it, it illustrates, you know, that while you're trying to sleep, some big mouth is talking and waking you up when you want to sleep. We've all can identify with that, especially at camp when you want to go to bed at night and you're a counselor. And those, those kids just keep, I'll, I'll tell you, we'll get a little closer to camp. I'm going to tell you how to handle that. 
This is why I don't ever go to camp as a counselor. We don't want the church getting sued. But I guarantee you, there are things that you can do. And they, I guarantee you, after the first night, they will go Betty by at 4.30 in the afternoon if you tell them to. But that's the, and it's a good illustration. You know, it's irritating. You're trying to sleep and some big mouth is over there talking about this or that and talking about her boyfriend or his guy talking about a girlfriend, hopefully not a girl talking about a girlfriend, but, but the, you never know. And they're going, and, and you're trying to sleep. You had a tough day at camp and they're just going on And you say, look, try to go, to, we need to go to bed now. Lights out at 10 o'clock, you know, and they just keep on going. And then, then they start, you just get them quiet and then they start to giggle on that means they got those little lights that they're sending messages across the thing with them, you know, and they're giggling about it. And then the giggling keeps you awake. That's a great illustration because when you're trying to focus on the preaching of the Word of God, some loudmouth idiot will distract you, and it's irritating. I get it. Nothing more distracting when, they, when you're trying to focus. Uh, and, and the verse says, it shall be a curse to him because he winds up deceiving himself. He actually believes that the Christian never gets involved in ministry, never really goes to church, never really has any relationship with his family in the Bible, never really does anything, and real Christianity is showing up when Dr. Ruckman is here and letting everybody know how you're praising the Lord on that day, but we'll see you in a year. And everybody knows he's an idiot. Absolutely no credibility. His life and family will be a disaster, no substance to him, just a lot of hype. And when Dr. Ruckman came to town, or any time you had a great preacher over the years that were, that was, I mean, they all show up. Now, inspirationally, that's a great verse. And it really lays out something that we can all identify with. But when we get into the next two verses, we see how all this fits into a doctrinal context within the tribulation period. Because the next verse says this, a continual dropping in a rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Too bad this didn't fall on Mother's Day. We could have had some fun with this one, but we won't. Now, inspirationally, a continual dropping in a rain, that drip. Did you ever try to go to sleep at night when you're camping someplace? And it's raining slowly, but just enough that you're under a tree where that tree is dropping a 20-pound drip on you every 10 seconds. And it hits the top of your car. You just go to sleep. Or tin roof. It's just, it just, it just irritating. It keeps you up all night long. And it'll drive you nuts, that drip, drip, drip. And I'll tell you, so will a contentious woman who will just keep things going all the time. And that's what he's talking about here. We'll see who this woman is in a minute. But the book of Proverbs <coughs> clearly uh, defines her in the Bible. Uh, the Bible says in 7-11 that she's loud, she's stubborn, and she's obnoxious. It says that she is a busybody in 22. Uh, uh, she's a busybody and won't abide in her own house in 7-11. The Bible says that her mouth is a deep pit in 22.7. The Bible says she's a brawling woman in 21.9. She's a clamorous woman. I didn't say glamorous. I said clamorous in 9.13. She's a nagging woman. She's a gossiping woman in 11.13. She's an odious woman in chapter 30, verse 23. That's hateful. Now, doctrinally, we know this woman to be the strange woman of verse 13 in this chapter. And we know that this strange woman uh, has the attire of a harlot. We've studied her in chapter 5, chapter 7. And she's really worked her way in and out of Proverbs many times, showing you the difference between somebody with understanding who stays away from this religion or someone who is foolish who gets taken up in it. And in general, it's a reference to the Roman Catholic Church, who is so clearly laid out in Revelation 17 and 18 as the great mother of harlots, Babylon, mystery religion. And if anybody could read those chapters, there's no question in your mind who he's talking about there. Doctrinally, the loud blessings that bring on a curse, verse 14, would be your priest or your pope on Easter Sunday or Christmas, 
uh, or all through history through the church councils like the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Trent, Council of Constantinople, the Council of Lyons, where they, where they, they progressed great things for Christianity and wound up becoming a curse. The Council of Trent, 1500 or so, was supposed to be a council that worked out all of the issues in Christianity, and the Roman Catholic Church was going to define what Christianity really was. And all it was, when that big swelling word like Proverbs chapter 27, they put out over 155 curses on anybody who believes exactly what you and I believe. That's what it's talking about. Uh, her public display of false Christianity and the demonic spiritual piety that in the end will curse you to send you straight to hell. You know, you see it on the holy days over there in St. Peter's Square. 100,000 people will show up for Pope Pepperoni to come out and, and uh, give him a little sermonette and give him a blessing, put him under the sign of the cross, and everybody thinks that uh, they just got a blessing. No, you got a curse that's going to send you straight to hell if you don't get saved. These guys in Matthew chapter 23, verse 9, are called fathers. who wear rob robes, and the Bible says they're like whited sepulchers. They're clean on the outside, pretty on the outside, but inside they're full of dead man bones. And the Bible says in Matthew 23, 15, that when they find a convert, they'll make him two times full the child of hell than he was before they got their hooks in him. Now, I want you to look, once we get that down, look at the rainy day. Verse 15, a continual dropping in a rainy day. I want you to notice, first of all, by careful observation, it says in a rainy day, not on a rainy day. That means it's a specific day. And if you know your Bible, you know what we're dealing with here. It's called in the Bible, the former and the latter rain. Built into your Bible in a specific day. The day of the Lord, which is a rainy day, Joel chapter 2, Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. And it's a rain, uh, day, rainy day that, uh, uh, you, and you know how it works. The uh, definitive chapter on the uh, former and latter rain would be James chapter 5, verses 7 through 20. And uh, you want the Old Testament passages on it, and there's many of them. It would be Joel 2, 23, Job 37, 6, I think 2 Chronicles 6, 26, 2 Chronicles 7, 12, Obviously, Book of Proverbs 16, 14, Psalm 68, 8, and 9, 2 Samuel 23, 4, uh, Hosea is a good one, Hosea 10, 12, Jeremiah is a good one, 14, 22, and Isaiah 5, 6. And, and the way it works is this. In, in the tribulation, you have Moses and Elijah showing up. And what God does in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, last three and a half years, he sends the nation of Israel who, as we saw last week, are keeping the commandments of God and the faith in Jesus. And we found out Thursday night why it's just Jesus, didn't we? We went through that. And so these guys showing up, and Moses represents the law, and uh, Elijah represents the prophets. And the Old Testament is divided up in the law and the prophets. So these two guys show up to the nation of Israel, and they begin to do the miracles in the last three and a half years of the tribulation that they did in the Old Testament. You'll find that in the Old Testament, Moses turned the waters to blood. So in the tribulation period, yes, the waters to blood. You'll find out the plagues taking place all around the world in the tribulation. Moses brought in those plagues in the tribulation in Egypt. Egypt's a type of the world. Which brings up an incredible deal because now you have to be faced with dispensationally that all of those things back there that actually did happen historically or a future picture of something that's going to happen. So you learn what's going to happen by what already happened. Tremendous way to learn your Bible. But then we have Elijah. He represents the prophets. And over there in uh, the book of James chapter 5, you're clearly told that in Elijah's prophecy in the Old Testament, what he actually did was he, sh it, he, he shut up heaven that it rained one time here. And then he shut up heavens and for the next three and a half years in the Old Testament, for the next three and a half years it did not rain. And at the end of that three and a half years reign, it, it, he opened up the heavens and it rained. Hence, it's called the former and the latter reign. And in James chapter 5, which is the tribulation context, it talks about those key words we talked about last week, the word patience. Uh, we're there to hold to have the patience of Job. It, it's all geared toward the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. It tells you right in that chapter that in the last half of the tribulation period, when Moses and Elijah show up, Moses is doing his thing, 
And what Elijah does is he stops heaven at the beginning of the great tribulation, which is the midpoint, the first uh, three and a half, after the first three and a half years. He shuts up heaven, and for that last half of the tribulation period, three and a half years, it doesn't rain at all. And this time when it rains, it's the second coming of Christ. Christ comes, Joel 2, in a rainstorm on a cloudy day. Hence, the former and the latter rain. So, verse 15 is talking about a continual dripping, dropping, a continual putting out of the garbage that is going on. This strange woman will rule the world from around 400 A.D. in the New Testament up through the rapture of the church and up into the tribulation period with her loud mouth. And she will be an irritation. She'll be spewing out <coughs> blessings to the world that will damn and curse the world and send them straight to hell. She'll mix her religion with politics. So back in Kings, you have the great picture of Ahab, the king of Israel. There's your political side. Jezebel, uh, the prophetess of Baal worship. And you have a great example of Ahab as a type of the Antichrist. Jezebel is a type of the uh, religious system. And the two of them are linked together politically and religiously. There it is. And guess who shows up with Elijah and Jezebel? You guessed it, Elijah. So all of this is, uh, is an incredible picture, mixing her religion and her politics, getting kings and queens and presidents, presidents drunk with the wine of her fornication, just like Revelation chapter 17, verse 2 tells us. And uh, nothing worse than a big mouth woman unless it's a big mouth man. And when you get a big mouth man and a big mouth woman, one representing the religious side, one representing the political side, you've got something special, and I don't mean in a good way. At an inspirational sense, we all know uh, women just like this. You can't go through the course of life if you're 20, 30 years old and you've been around for a while. You, you, we've all seen it. Uh, you know, uh, it, if it wasn't bad enough, the jokes about them are endless. Timeless. Most of them are not very flattering. Guy said to his neighbor one time, I mean, there's hundreds of them. Guy said to his neighbor one time, you know, he opened up the window, stuck his head out, and the guy says, oh, that wasn't a sonic boom you heard. My wife just called me home for supper. <laughs> guy said, my wife has real character. The other guy said, yeah, mine has multiple personalities, and every morning I get to meet a new one. <laughs> guy said, my wife is so loud, when she opens her mouth, the factory across the street breaks for lunch. <laughs> they go on and on and on. Guy said a woman marries the first time for love, gets married the second time for companionship, gets married the third time for support, and the fourth, fifth, and sixth time will be out of habit. A lot of truth to it. Either way, doctrinally or inspirationally, we all know who this woman will be. And uh, it's a great unfolding of not only what we have to see and deal with in a practical way, but in a in a doctrinal way, we know how it all fits. And my goal is for you to understand the book of Proverbs. Get, these, get, this, wicked, get, this, get this wise man and foolish man laid out. Get this strange woman and this wicked man laid out. Get them laid out from a doctrinal standpoint, but more importantly, get them laid out for your own personal life so you can stay away from them because they're around. Look at verse 16. This is a good one. Whosoever hideth her... Hideth the wind, and the ointment of his right hand, which bereath itself. Now, the key word here will be the word bereath. And, uh, you know, that's, a, that's an old English word, and it means to make something visible that you could not see clearly. To make something understandable uh, by being able to see it clearly, and now you understand it where before you couldn't. Now, here again, when it comes to teaching the Bible, we just stick with the Bible. You know, I know everybody's got their personal opinion about verses in the Bible. Uh, I never have a personal opinion about a verse in the Bible because I learned a long time ago, my opinion about the Bible is as worthless as yours. What I want is what the Bible says. Hey, look, I, I've made enough mistakes in my life to, to fill a, a Noah's Ark with animals ten times over. My opinion about what God says doesn't matter at all because my whole life was a track record of bad choices until I got saved and got in this book. So I'll just stick with what the book says. 
No, I don't have an opinion about reading something like that. I just go to the Bible, and I will tell you this. It says, whoever hideth her, hideth the wind. And in your Bible, wind will be two things when you lay it out in the Word of God and you study it. First of all, it will be a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. Over there in John chapter 3, we have the story of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and, uh, you know, talked to Jesus about who he was. And Jesus makes a reference back to him and his nation by saying, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And they have a little dispensation here. And Jesus tells him that the, the, you have to be born by the Spirit. And he's talking about the nation of Israel, which they do get born again at the second coming of Christ, at the latter reign. And he says there, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and now heareth the sound thereof, but can't tell whence it cometh and whether it goeth. And then he says, so is everyone that is born of God. You can't, you can hear the wind. You can't see it. And you don't know where it's coming from, and you don't know where it's going. And that's what the Spirit of God is like. You know, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 6 talks about the cycle. You have the Son type of Christ. And then you have the wind type of the Holy Spirit of God. And it says there in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 6 that the wind goeth by its circuit, by his circuits. The wind is a male personality. Isn't it the wind by its circuits? It's the wind by his circuits because the wind is a type of, 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 of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God. And it shows you in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit of God has a pattern. Now, if you want to find that pattern, obviously, the law first mentioned. You go back to the first place in the Bible where you find the Spirit of God. It'll be Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the Bible says that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, the first time you find the Spirit of God in your Bible, it moves. And that Holy Spirit of God never stops through the rest of your Bible. In other words, in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the Holy Spirit of God filed a flight plan. And then through the rest of the Bible, you can follow that flight plan of where the Holy Spirit of God is going. It gives you the direction. It, you can follow it through the Bible where it goes. It shows you the nations. It shows you everything that God is trying to do and what he does. And you just follow it. You don't have to have an opinion about it. You, know, you find the first place that it found once you know it's wind or likened to wind, and then you just follow it through. Again, in Acts chapter 2, we have the famous day of Pentecost. The fulfillment of the promise of the coming Holy Spirit of God. That's what Pentecost was. John chapter 16, a great definitive chapter in your Bible on the Holy Spirit of God and what he does was promised to you and to me and to Israel that the Holy Spirit of God would come. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 2, it says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Now the stupid charismatics get into that thing, and they want to make the day of Pentecost something for the church. And I got some terrible news for you. You see, that's making, that's telling you something making your own opinion. You know what the day of Pentecost was? Somebody says, yeah, it was the beginning of the church. No, the day of Pentecost was an Old Testament feast. You say, well, it's where the church started. Show me that in Paul's writings. I mean, Paul was the apostle of the church. You think he missed that? Why would you take something there in Acts chapter 2, which is the day of Pentecost, make it something into the church age when you never find it again, and certainly the church age in Acts chapter 2 hasn't started yet? But that's what you do when you make the Bible your own opinion instead of just staying with it. Somebody said, well, what do you think the day of Pentecost was? I don't think anything. I just go with the Bible. It was an Old Testament feast. And in Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost, it came. And I know the charismatic wants to make this a great day, you know. But you know what happened one year later on the day of Pentecost? Nothing. <laughs> you know what happened a year after that, two years later? Not a thing. You know what happened three years, four years, five years, 50 years, 20 years, 100 years after that on the day of Pentecost? Not a thing. Because it's the Israel given to them on an Old Testament feast to illustrate to them what God was doing. And of course, that's a reference to the picture of God's Holy Spirit. And certainly, 
the Holy Spirit of God came that day. And as you go through the book of Acts, if you understand how to rightly divide it, you see how it fits into the church age today. No question about it. But I'm going to show you that that's a reference to the Holy Spirit of God likened to wind. But now in the Antichrist world and in the Roman Catholic Church and in our world today, uh, you, would, you, you have another spirit. It's likened to wind, and it's a counterfeit spirit. And you have a Bible over there in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. You have a reference to the spirit of Antichrist. It's going to also be likened to wind. That's the wind we're talking about here. Somebody hiding this wind, trying to put it off on as the real deal, but it gets berated. You get to see what it really is. And this one will come and deceive you. Second John chapter 4, verse 7, this is this, talking about this spirit. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. It's a false wind that somebody tries to hide uh, and show you that it's the real deal, when in reality it's satanic. But the Bible, this is why we stick with the Bible. This is why we don't form any opinions about anything. We just stick with what the Bible says and it teaches. The Bible will always reveal to you what's right and what's wrong when you rightly divide it. So that's the first thing. Second thing is the wind will be likened to false doctrine. This will be found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Again, Nobody's opinion about it, just taking the Bible, Scripture with Scripture, laying it out. It says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about whatever, here it comes, wind of doctrine. By the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lay in wait to deceive. So we have that there's a false Holy Spirit of God because the Holy Spirit of God is likened to wind. And when God's Holy Spirit the true spirit of God, when it came, it came like the wind. Then we have a spirit of Antichrist that will be a false wind to try to get you to believe that is the true thing. And then we have false doctrine. And false doctrine is like a wind and is built on the satanic wind that will just toss you to and fro. Do you ever notice that in all of the false religions, Roman Catholicism, Charismatics, Methodists, every one of them. You ever notice how there's no real peace? You see, if you have a mom or a dad that dies and they're saved and I preach their funeral and we know they're saved, you can take comfort in that. You have a Bible that promises you that not only are they up in heaven, but you're going to see them again. And you can take comfort in that. But if you're a Roman Catholic, there is no comfort in the death of a loved one. They go to purgatory. And now, depending how many bucks, no Buck Rogers, how much you pay or the candles you light, whether you get them out or not, and you never know if you do get them out or not. There's no comfort in that. There's no peace in the fact that, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, that you, as a Catholic or, or whatever, a charismatic, runs, every one of them runs around thinking they're going to lose their salvation. What kind of peace is that? Now, I, I'm, you, you know, I know where you go. I know. Well, you Baptists, you know, you think that because you're saved, you can do whatever you want. Well, you know what? That is true. That is true. If I killed somebody this morning, I'm still going to heaven. If I went out and got drunk tonight and ran over somebody down in the plaza or down at Westport and killed 19 people, I'm still going to heaven. I get it. You want me to say it? I just said it. Now, here comes the real kicker. Because I am saved, I never do that. You see the difference? You take that position. Well, you think you're saved, you can do whatever you want. That's because you're not saved and you want to do whatever you want. In other words, when you get saved, it doesn't give you a license to do whatever you want to do. When you get saved, you fall in love with a book and the Lord Jesus Christ and you don't want to do those things anymore. Don't tell me about how it works. You'll never see me down at Westport running over a bunch of people. Because I got plenty of them down the end of the cul-de-sac I can run over who I want to. Amen. Amen is right. Thank you, brother. Get your car and be at my house at 930 tonight. <clears throat> and, and, and that's what happens. We get, we get sucked into those things and we get blown apart. There's no peace in those other false teachings. There's no feast. 
There's no peace being blown about by every wind of doctrine. There's no peace getting up in the morning and, 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 and thinking, well, boy, you know what? I, you know, I got to really be careful today because I, I, I don't want to lose my salvation. Well, let me tell you something. I think you ought to be really careful in the morning, but not because you're going to lose your salvation because you don't want to disappoint the one that died for you on the cross. How about that working for you? That's where it's at. And I got to tell you, this whole idea, you know, that the lack of peace. I, I, you know, I, 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 I've watched this thing for years and years and years and years. These guys who claim to have the great healing power and the great power in a charismatic movement and the great power of this and the great power in that. And all we got the victory and all you stupid Baptists. Yeah, but you know what you don't have? You, have like, you haven't got one little thing that ruins everything that you do believe. You don't have the assurance of your salvation. And the truth of the matter is, if you could actually lose your salvation, you're going to lose it. The idea that you're somebody special, that you can make. Hey, every man in that Bible, every one of them, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the devil found out their weakness and he got them. And there's only one man that kept it, never lost it, the devil couldn't get. And he's the one I believed in. You know why I believed in him? Because I screw up 10 times a day. If me getting to heaven depended on me holding the line, <laughs> we're in trouble. I lose my car keys 10 times a day. I came out of the house this morning and forgot every cell phone I have. <laughs> and I'm going to hang on to my salvation? I walk around the house looking for my coffee. I have to find it by smelling. <laughs> Where did I put that cup? You kidding me? I can't find my jackets. I can't find my shirts. I can't find this. I can't find my shoes. I got one. I showed up. I'm glad you didn't know this. I showed up the other night at Bible study, had two different gym shoes on. (laughs) Now, you're expecting me to hold on to my salvation? Are you kidding me? And I thank God I don't have to do it. Hey, I'm not perfect. None of it perfect. I'll do stupid things, but thanks be to God, my salvation is something I got to hang on to. David said, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. It wasn't his. And there's no peace when you get blown about by every wind of doctrine. When you worry about this and worry about that. Why? You're going you're gonna to go through your whole life and you're just going to, you're going to, you're just going to, and you're going to be in the hospital and you got about 15 minutes left and uh, you're going to be there. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to keep my eyes closed. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. Here I am. And about 10 seconds before you die, you're going to have an impure thought in your mind. You're going to die and go to hell. He's going to get you. If you're counting on you to keep your salvation, you're in trouble. Every man in that Bible tried to do it by their own righteousness, could not do it. In the Old Testament, they had to have a lamb die for them. In the New Testament, the lamb of God had to die for me. See, that's false wind. That's false doctrine. Put out by a false spirit like in wind. And he's saying, henceforth, no more children tossed up to and fro. And carried about with every wind of doctrine. I like that, tossed to and fro. When God back in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, when the devil walked in, and he said, hey, devil, where you been? He said, oh, I've been down in the earth walking up to and fro. There he is. Now, what's he saying in verse 16? This strange woman and her church and her doctrine are a counterfeit Holy Spirit of God. That the Word of God in its truth will manifest it for you exactly what it is. And, of course, the great passages on it in the Old Testament of Job chapter 40, Job chapter 41. In the New Testament, Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. We talked about God said, I will not, I will, I will not, the face of his garment. He'll, 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 he'll show you who he is. And then it says here, the ointment bereath itself. Now, again, ointment defined in your Bible, not my opinion. Ointment defined in the Bible will be likened to the word of God. Back in the Old Testament, you had what is called in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 22, the bomb of Gilead. In historical, the bomb of Gilead was a plant that grew in Gilead that the, the 
taking the properties of it and whatever they did with it produced a healing agent that you put on a wound or whatever and it healed you. And it's a picture of the Word of God. And back in Jeremiah chapter 8, when Israel's in a real mess and they need a healing, he's telling them that there is no bomb of Gilead in Israel. I always thought that was instructive because we get over in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, talking about the Laodicean church. We talked about it last week. He says they're spiritually blind, they're spiritually, and he tells them, he tells them to get eye salve that they might clearly see. You know what that is? The Word of God. When you take that book, the bomb of Gilead, and massage it into your eyes, whatever eye disease you've got that keeps you from seeing the truth goes away, and that book reveals itself to you. You see, now I know the Bible does a lot of good things, but the Bible will heal you. I don't care what your life is, what your mess is. I tell you all the time, I don't care what you did, where you've been. Or, it doesn't bother me. All I care about are where are you at right now today and where do you want to go from here? Sure, you may have messed some things up in your life that you can't repair. I get that. I understand that. You know what? You can't go back and change the past. All you can do is build a foundation for the future. And many times that's what you have to do. But it's the word of God that will heal you. The Word of God will take you in the, when the world breaks you and there's a brokenness in your life and you're just, you're just in a mess and a quandary and you don't know what to do and you're simply tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. It's the Word of God, the bomb of Gilead, the eye salve that will, you, you, you put to your wounded spirit and it'll heal you. And what he's saying here, this false ointment from this false spirit who had blown about by every wind of doctrine has absolutely nothing they can heal anything in your life with. There's no cure. Your problems will continue to be your problems. Your issues will never go away. They will only get worse. And this is so true of God's people. When they have the bomb of Gilead, they have the truth, but they won't apply it. One time I had to, back in the day when I was a younger kid, I, uh, I had strep throat. I think I set the Guinness World Book of Records for strep throat. Because I went to the doctor and the doctor said, you got strep throat. He put me on antibiotics. And I took those antibiotics for about two or three days and I started feeling better and I didn't take them anymore. And the next week I was back in the doctor's office again. That happened for three weeks until I figured it out. That was pretty stupid back then, not much better now. But, but I, I figured, you know what? If you've got something wrong with you, if you just take the medicine till you start feeling better, you're going to get sick again. You've got to take the whole prescription. And boy, when you've got a problem in your life and you've got something in your life that you're dealing with and you come in and get the Word of God, you have to take it all the way to the end. You can't get going till you feel better, till you start feeling out from under the pressure and then just dump the Bible again. And that's exactly what people do. There was a false and phony church religion, just like there are false and phony Christians, a guy in Proverbs 27, who talk big and loud, but have nothing in their life, nothing in that particular church or religion that has anything to do with God. And the so-called blessings are really curses. And the wind that they try to hide and tell you that it's of God in reality, it's from the devil, the spirit of Antichrist, 1 John 4, 3. In both cases, whether it's an individual or whether it's a religious system or a church, there's a continual dropping of garbage that will be annoying to any real child of God. You know, in the ministry, you have to have a lot of patience with people. You really do. You, you don't have the luxury in maybe in a few cases to write somebody off if it's something that, you know, is a really a bad deal that is dangerous to others. Uh, you know, but I, I, I got to tell you, if there's any characteristic of the body of Christ today in this lackadaisical, laodicical, laodicean church that we're in, it's the fact that people long-term, don't want to do what's right. You don't want to solve your problems. You want to treat your symptoms. You want to get feeling better, and then hopefully you can get back to whatever lifestyle you lived before. 
And, uh, you know, it's a, it, it's a thing where through your life, there you can look like, it, it's like Hansel and Gretel trying to find their way out of the forest by leaving little breadcrumbs. In your life, you look back, there's a lot of crumbs. And your whole life is, is crumbs of bad choices and garbage that, and everything that you've done. I'm going to tell you something. At some point in your life, you have to change that. I'm not criticizing you for doing that. We all have blood trails in our life, trust me. But what I am saying is this, at some point in your life, you have to change that. You can't change, you can't change the problems in your life with the same thinking that caused those problems. You have to come to the place where you, you get past those things. And I see people all of my ministry, all my life, and hey, it's the job that I chose. If I don't like it, go sell used cars someplace. But I'm telling you, I've seen it all my life where people won't change. They don't like the way they are. They complain about the way they are. I, I've seen it all my, all my years in this business. I've seen it. I've dealt with them, thousands of them. They, 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 they just simply do not want to change about them what needs to change for whatever reason. And all of their life, there's no blessings to it. It's just a curse. And everything around them gets damaged. And that the wind that they try to hide and tell you is of God, it's really not. And all you have to do is look at the breadcrumb trails. In both cases, whether it's an individual or a church, there's a continual dropping of, gar- dropping of garbage that will be annoying to any real child of God because it's always a mess to clean up. Churches, and individuals. Churches have done it all down through history. We're seeing it on an unprecedented scale today and individuals all their lives. And the Word of God through the Spirit of God will be the, uh, will beray the false ointment. For anybody who's in the book, it'll show you exactly what you're dealing with and what you have. You know, so these three verses are, are, are incredible verses. You have an understanding of inspirationally how they fit in, but doctrinally, they're incredible. And it will be a reference doctrinally to the Jew in the tribulation who gets the false blessing and turns out to be a curse. The book of Proverbs is an incredible book. And I've told you this before. The book of Proverbs is literally the mind of God. And I don't know, there's five wisdom books in your Bible in the Old Testament. There's also five wisdom books in the New Testament. And these five wisdom books in the Old Testament, if you, would, if you just wanted to begin to get a complete understanding of everything that God is and He's doing and how you fit into it, you start, they're not called the wisdom books for nothing. And you know what? When you go through the book of Job, you find that Job is on the ground seven days persecuted by the devil. And yet when you start coming through that, you'll find that Job not only is a type of the nation of Israel, but prophetically you find Job is a type of Christ going through his sufferings and some of the greatest verses anywhere in all of the Bible for the child of God to understand the suffering of Christ on the cross is found in the book of Job. We want to talk about getting the heart of God. I talked to you about the Apostle John who laid his head on the breast of Jesus and heard the very heartbeat of God. We talked a lot about the heartbeat of God. But I want to tell you right now, if you want the one book in the Bible, and I know the whole Bible is God's heart, I get it, but if you want the one book in the Bible, the wisdom book that's seemingly singled out as the heart of God, it'll be the book of Psalms. In particular, Psalms 119, 176 verses, and every verse in that Psalm 119 gives you a different aspect of something the Word of God will do for you. We talked about the Spirit of God today. We talked about the book of Ecclesiastes and the Spirit moving to its circuits. If you want to understand the mind of God's Spirit today, it'll be the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes gives you a, a picture of the world system from God's spirit standpoint, showing you everything that's wrong with it. And then at the end of the book, surely coming back to this, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What whole matter? The whole book of Ecclesiastes. Fear God, keep his commandments. We talk about as Christians our relationship with Jesus Christ. We talk about, you know, how, yeah, I'm, we're saved and on our way to heaven and, yeah, Christ is my Savior and all this stuff. But really, 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 let me tell you something. 
If you really want to understand what your relationship should be with Christ, then you've got to get the book that is the mind of Christ. And I know, again, the whole Bible is the mind of Christ, but if you want one particular book that tells you exactly how God, Christ, looks at you and how you should look at him, it's the book of Song of Solomon. And when you want to understand the mind of God, you come to the fifth wisdom book, and that'll be the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs will show you everything that God is doing. I mean, it's an incredible book. It shows you what he thinks about everything in life on planet Earth. And we are, as the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, to let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Somebody said, well, I'm really upset with him. When I talk, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. We know what he means by that. And yet the Bible says that when God gave us the word of God, he didn't give us a piece of his mind, praise the Lord. He gave us all his mind. And we know how the phrase works. And God gave it to us in a book, preserved, perfect, inspired, and without error. Gave us his mind. Because he wants us to understand what he thinks. He gave us the Song of Solomon as a wisdom book because he wants us to understand what a real relationship with Christ is, not this phony hype that we think we have today. And what he wants us to look at where the Holy Spirit of God's flight plan is and the circuits by where he's doing and what man is doing, he gave us the book of Ecclesiastes. And when he wants you to get God's heartbeat, he knows God's heartbeat is truth. So he gave you the book of Psalms. But all that will mean nothing to you if you don't have a context to put it in and a context by which it drives you through your Christian life. And you know what that is? That'll be the book of Job, his sufferings for you and for me. Once you understand the price that was paid, there'll be no price to be too big to be paid for him, for you, with your life. And inspirationally, when you don't get that in mind, then you'll become the man of Proverbs chapter 27, verse 14, 15, and 16. You'll become a curse to everybody around you instead of a blessing. Curse to your wife, curse to your kids, curse to your job. Everybody will look at you as a joke instead of a blessing. You know, the Christian life, and I, I can't be more serious about this. The Christian life, last week, you know, we talked about it, and this week too, last week with the judgment seat of Christ. But based on last week and this week, the, the Christian life will never be just about who you are with God. Though I understand how important that is. But in reality, looking at your whole life and seeing what you built for God with your life. What big deal is it that you have a relationship with God if you never took that relationship and built anything for him? You already told last week in Proverbs 3, you're to be a wise master builder. Building yourself first, building your family second, and building your ministry third. And we talked about last week facing the judgment seat of Christ as a child of God who in this life never built anything for God. Plenty of stuff for ourselves. You see, life is so simple, but we spend all of our lives trying to make it so complicated so we can get around what I just said. We do a lot, but it's always with the wrong motive. We do this, we do that, we say we do this, but the fruit of it just isn't there. You have, you have this, you have that, but it's all the Spirit of Christ doesn't flow through it. We, we go through our whole life trying to keep life so complicated, bringing everything in, bringing everybody else, bringing all these things in and saying to ourselves, this is why I am the way I am, when in reality, life is basically so simple. It's just simply fear God and keep his commandments. It's about letting this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, and allowing God to change you. You know, you can get in the Bible 24-7. You can understand all the great theme things of the Bible. But if that Bible doesn't change your own personal life and the way you view things in life, you ain't going anywhere. You know, it isn't all about you. It's about him. It isn't all about me. It's about him. It's about understanding in the five wisdom books, I have everything I need. If that's all I had of the Bible, I'd have enough to have everything I need to have with him. I'd, have, I'd understand the sufferings. I'd understand his heartbeat. I'd understand where the Spirit's at. 
I understand my relationship with Christ. I understand everything in life, how God sees it from his viewpoint through the book of Proverbs. That's why the book of Proverbs is so important. That's why we've not hurried our way through it. We were joking earlier, you know, earlier in the year or whenever it was, you know, that uh, people complain because we've been in Proverbs too long. And my answer to that is, yes, if I was you, I would want to get out of the mind of God as quickly as I could too. That's why I'm not in a hurry. Anybody here want to skip through? If God said, I'm going to open up my mind and give you everything I got, anybody here would run through it? We'd spend the rest of our lives doing it. Unfortunately, Proverbs will come to an end, and then we'll glean some other aspect of it. But the truth of the matter is, that book is for you and for me. And maybe now, as we come through it to this far, you begin to see the magnitude of it. You really begin to see that I know doctrinally that wise man, that foolish man is the nation of Israel. I get it. But inspirationally, it's us. Your life and my life will be everything that God wants it to be based on the understanding we get through the wisdom of God by getting God's mind and how we see every, I underline every circumstance in life. Not how you react to it, but how you respond to it biblically. That's the key. And that's the, that's the great value of that book. So we'll stay with it as we come through it. Next week's going to be a great verse. I can't wait till next week. And it will have a great time with it. Let's have a word of prayer.